Hi, everybody. I'm Jeff Hunt, and this is the Human Capital Podcast produced by Goalspan. My quest on this podcast is to uncover the deeply human aspect of work. Today, I get to talk to the president and CEO of a 153-year-old family business. How many companies do you know that have successfully maintained family continuity throughout so many generations? My guess is probably none. Today, we'll learn what it's like to run a company with so much history. How do you preserve core values that define a culture of excellence while shedding old behaviors which don't work anymore? How do you retain the positive aspects of heritage while creating innovative new products in a company with so much longevity? You don't do these things exceedingly well by accident. My guest today is Gunluck Ruder, who's the president and CEO of S. Martinelli and Company. Most people know Martinelli's by their award-winning sparkling ciders and apple juices, which are, in my opinion, the best in the business. Gunn has been with Martinelli's for eight years and has operated as a non-family member in various capacities, including vice president and chief financial officer, in addition to president and CEO. Gunn received his bachelor's degree from Georgetown University and his MBA from Stanford. Welcome, Gunn. Great to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the family business topic, which is near and dear to my heart, uh, because I formerly ran a, a family business myself, I would like you to take us back to the beginning of your career. Was there one person or significant event that inspired you to go into business, ultimately pursuing executive leadership? Yeah, I, you know, not necessarily one person, but there was a period in life where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to focus on. Um, I initially was thinking about a medical career. When I went into undergrad, spent two years in a pre-med program, then switched to a history major, uh, and ultimately wanted to live and experience life overseas. So I moved to Japan and I was uh, working with a Japanese company and that my first project there was to help figure out how to work with the Japanese industrial group that I was part of, which was associated with Nippon Steel, the Japanese government and the World Bank to, uh, to apply a, a program to rehabilitate the Soviet oil and gas industry after they had just emerged out of, uh, out of their communist heritage in the early 90s. And, and for me, I was a Russian history was actually part of my, my undergraduate studies. And what was so interesting about that experience that got me energized about business is I had thought about politics. I had thought about, as I said, medical uh, field to have an impact. But what I saw in that process was how business could impact not only making money for those that are conducting the business, but also having an impact in the world around you and, and having an impact on politics, having a direct impact on the, the benefiting people's lives in, in the Russian uh, economy and, and the Russian people. So that experience of bringing the background and interest in the culture, but also then the experience of understanding the impact of business in that context of, of uh, helping to shift the geopolitical focus of Russia, that whole experience experience really codified for me that, hey, you know what, business, I can have broad impact through the business world as, as much or more than how I was conceiving of having it in the medical field or going into politics. That's such a great reference for our listeners, especially when you think back 20 or 30 years ago, it was very different 
today, this is really what employees are demanding, isn't it? So they want to join right. an organization that is truly having a difference on society, the employees, the world. Uh, they they want to be clear with their purpose and have it be compelling. Um, wouldn't you say that's right. true? Absolutely. Well, and, and it is interesting to see that evolution. Now it's part of it kind of has to be part of your DNA in terms of having a, a, a more holistic view of how you can provide an opportunity for your employees, not only to go and uh, punch a clock, if you will, but to really understand how they're impacting uh, the local community the, and the broader community, as well as global issues that we're all facing. And and that's part of what makes a family business so interesting because there are some things that are just intrinsic in terms of how a family looks at a business and what that means versus non-family businesses. There's We have a few more threads that we can pull on and latch on to, uh, but we have to obviously go well beyond that and build out the value proposition for our employees. Without question. Um, speaking of family business, how did you end up coming to work for the Martinelli family? <laughs> well, that's a very long story, Jeff, uh, but it started, I've known the family since I was 14 years old and uh, I've been exposed to the products and was a, was a, a very uh, loyal consumer from, from those days. Uh, but I had great respect for the family over time growing up in the Bay Area and, and having met them when I was young and met some of the family members that were running the business at that time. When I was in business, uh, I had kind of an eclectic career in Japan and then in consulting and in banking and some other uh, uh, venture-related activities. And I, I wanted to get back into managing a business and, and away from more transactional uh, uh, roles that I had had in venture capital and private equity. And at the time, I was approached by the Martinelli family to help them think through their succession planning and, and how they could evolve their management team to bring in somebody from the outside and to help guide the business forward because there was nobody in the family that was ready to take that step. And after a variety of different discussions about how to frame that problem or that opportunity, it was something that I became quite interested in in terms of not only the, uh, the challenge of this generational shift and this family to non-family management, but also some of the opportunities I saw with this great brand uh, and to continue to grow the business for, for years to come. So it was a long, I've known the brands for many years and was just intrigued by the nature of the opportunity that I frankly never considered. I had never been in manufacturing before then or in consumer product goods industry. So it was a big shift for me. But because of my respect for the family and the opportunity itself, uh, it became uh, really exciting to, to make that change. And it seems like filling the positions of executive VP and or CFO really gave you sort of paved the way and gave you probably some really critical insight and experience in terms of taking over the role of president and CEO, correct? Yeah, that's right. The 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 path to um, the succession for John Martinelli at the time, who was president and CEO when I joined and when he hired me, was to come in as the VP, report to him, but with all the business lines reporting up through me. And it gave me a chance to immediately jump into the business with with everybody reporting up through me, but also with the transition of him still being involved and 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 grooming me to step into the the most senior role. And there was the, having the the financial role as part of that uh, was a critical sort of piece to understand how all the different dynamics in the business interact and and ultimately drove drove earnings. And every business is a little differently. And my his, my background was in finance, so seeing 
and controlling that end of the picture really got me a, a very quick, I got up the learning curve, which was steep, but very quickly because of that, that view through finance. Sure. And while we're on this topic of finance, maybe you could share just a little bit about why it's so important for not only CEOs, but leaders and executives in any capacity to really have a financial competency. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do, Jeff. I, you know, I think there's, I would take us one step back and I, I will answer the question, but I, I think it's very critical in these, in this economy and in this, this competitive landscape that we have, that there's a lot of cross-functional interaction and engagement. So not only marketing folks understanding finance or sales folks understanding operations, but everybody needs to be fluent in the challenges and opportunities of other parts of the business because things are so dynamic and interconnected. And so I think that's, that's I think fair to say across the board at the executive levels, there needs to be a lot of tight integration, especially in marketing, I'm sorry, especially in manufacturing when we're dealing with the supply chain issues that we are currently, that everybody has to be aware of the constraints and opportunities in real time as we talk to customers, as we talk to consumers, as we talk to suppliers, that cross-functional understanding is critical in the moment. Gunn, give me your take on why it, you think it's helpful, if you do, for companies to maintain family ownership through the generations. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, 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 many thoughts given we're now on our fifth, well, technically our sixth generation, one of the, uh, our, our fifth generation had a baby. So we've now have six generations of Martinelli's, but you know, there, there are, I think it's critical. There's a different lens that families put on a business and it relates back to meaning and, and why are we here? And you know, the family has a very personal connection to what the business means. It, it certainly is, you, you, it's, it is about dollars and cents and making money and making sure that you're competitive and all of the things that every business needs to be. But the business represents something more to the family. It represents family, right? Their, their touchstones in the business are about their children or their parents or their grandparents and the stories of generations that precede them. That mindset inevitably uh, impacts and this translates to the people who are all of us working here as well. We have that connection to past generations through the stories that have been told to us by the family members and then that we tell our employees as the, the management team uh, and, and how we keep those stories alive. And, and that sense of purpose and passion around what the company represents is an asset that many companies don't have as a motivator for our employees, that we're part of something more than, than a business, and I was about to say just, because there is no, all businesses are, are, have impact and value, but it, it's, we've got 153 years to draw on and trace the threads of the business through from the 1868 to, to today. And that gives us a lot of power with our employees as a motivator and as uh, connecting them to a bigger purpose or a bigger cause than many other companies can offer. That also translates to how we tell our story externally. You know, for consumers, there's a lot more awareness in the amongst buyers and consumers, of especially cons, uh, consumer packaged goods and food products. Of where is this product coming from? What what's the story behind what I'm eating or what I'm purchasing? And the story for us, we have an extremely genuine family business 
that has put the heart and soul of this family's time and energy into for 153 years. And that is a, a story that, as you, as you said in the introduction, is, is, is very difficult to replicate. There aren't many companies out there like us. And, and that's a real asset for us that, frankly, we need to do a better job communicating because many people don't know that history. And it, but it does have meaning and it, and it does, uh, we've, we've talked to consumers that that story is powerful and that, that implied, but also implied through what many consumers know, but what I know directly from how the, the family thinks about the business, the care that we put into this business, the legacy that we, we seek to preserve and how that's translated into the quality of the products and the types of relationships we build with our employees and our customers and our consumers. It's, there's just a different feeling when you're in a family business and that perspective of being so personal and they're having such generational passion that we can rely on and stand on the shoulders of all the, the Martinelli's that have come before us. So it, it's a very different feeling than, than what I've had at other for-profit companies that are not for-profit, uh, fam, non-family run companies that I've, that I've worked for. And, and I've worked for fantastic companies that I've loved, but it just is a different feeling here. Right. Yeah. And it's very interesting too, because we talk a lot in the consulting work we do and with clients about how culture is the ultimate differentiator. So, you know, you can always copy uh, pricing models and strategies and go to markets and uh, products even, but you can't uh, easily copy culture. And it feels like family, the family business culture is one additional dimension that's kind of a critical differentiator for you that is incredibly difficult uh, for an organization to copy. That's right. It is. It is an advantage for us, and it's interesting, Jeff. You know, when when I got here, when a company is relatively small, and the company, even though we've been around 153 years, it was a relatively small company up until about 25 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. There was a real growth curve, and and uh, which continues. But you know, for a small company, it's easier to maintain that culture if there are fewer people around without the discipline of codifying what you care about and what it means to be a family business or whatever the differentiator that you seek to emphasize in, in the company's culture. So we took a lot of time to try to distill what we felt it meant to be a family business and incorporate that in our cultural uh, statements and our cultural values. But we also wanted to codify, there's some elements that we needed to, to latch onto and, and to make sure that we were instilling in our team to make sure that we continued to be vigorous and uh, in terms of innovation and driving the business forward because as much of an asset that family history can be, it can sometimes be st a stagnating force in that, well, we've done it this way forever, so of course it'll be, it, we, we should keep doing things this way because we've been around for so long. Or, well, my father used to do, it's much harder to talk to somebody, well, my dad did it this way versus, well, the company used to do it this way when it's a person and it's personal, it's harder to break those patterns. If So there, there's, a, there's a, another edge to the sword of being a family business that we had to be very cognizant of as we structured and prioritized the values that we wanted to maintain and build upon. I'm going to share some statistics for our listeners about family businesses, because I think a lot of people don't really understand the magnitude of them in this country. There are 5.5 million family businesses in the U.S., and these companies contribute 57% of the U.S. GDP, which is about, I think, about $13.5 trillion. 
They employ 63% of our workforce, which is about, it's over 98, you know, over 100 million people, I think. And in addition, they're responsible for 78% of all new job creation. The average lifespan of the family business is 24 years. So you guys have beat that <laughs> in spades. About 40% of US family-owned businesses make it to the second generation, 13% make it to the third, and 3% make it to the fourth. <laughs> and so, but my question for you, Gunn, is you know, how when you look at all these stats, especially the, the employing 98 million people. That means there's a, a, a huge amount of non-family members that are working in family businesses. You already touched a little bit on this, but what advice do you have specifically for non-family members in management? Right, right. I, and I'll answer that, but do they have any statistics on, on family businesses that make it to the fifth generation, Jeff? Any any statistics on that front? I'm, I'm curious. We Actually the... stops at three, but we need to kind of get granular there because that's right. Probably that's right. Less than a percent. <laughs> so yeah, for non-family managers, and I'll say executives, because I think that's where it really becomes different. There, you have to be cognizant of what the legacy of the business means from the family itself. If the family remains the majority owners of the business, that's very relevant to setting the priorities of the company is understanding what the family, how the family views the business, what the family's goals are, and, and really understand that framework before, before you start going down a path that that you may see to take the company whether through a, a planning process or what have you uh, and that requires a lot of conversation with shareholders family shareholders the board and and whatever executives of the family may be working in the business and it's important to have that touchstone and grounding because that is the foundation of what the genuine brand and or culture is and and, and has stood upon in our case 153 years at the same time that can't be a limiting factor. So you have to understand it, you have to respect it, and you have to really figure out where you can bolster, where there might be areas where you can improve and build upon and, and, and potentially grow in different directions. But it, it, you have to have that grounding and you have to have the courage to challenge those assumptions of where the business has been to ensure that you're going to be relevant going forward. And, and that's where I think a lot of outside managers and executives stumble, either in, in viewing their job as just preserving the legacy, which there's an element of the job is preservation of the legacy because the legacy is meaningful and genuine. But if that's all you're doing, that has a limited shelf life. And the other end of the spectrum is, well, here's what the family did. Well, you know, this is this is 2021 now. We're going to go in a totally different direction because my view of what the company needs to be is X, Y, or Z. And is it, both those extremes aren't tenable for a family-owned business. And it's that middle point of, of respecting the legacy and understanding what translates to maintain the competitive advantage for the business and maintain that relevancy for the brand as you continue to build resiliency in the business and drive innovation going forward. And in a way, again, that's respectful and consistent with what the brand represents and what the family cares about, 
but that's relevant for the consumers and ensures that the business continues to grow and flourish as the environment around it changes. So that's a balance that's very difficult to strike because again, it's so personal to family members. So it's that respect, but also courage to move ahead and to, and to continue to innovate and grow the business. So you mentioned this a little bit, but pre-pandemic, you took your team through a pretty intensive strategic planning, sort of reevaluating mission, vision, core values as you were working on your own internal succession. I'm curious about what pivots you had to make in executing that plan when the pandemic hit. There's always so much learning for us in these significant events. Right. Yeah, we were we were making uh, and now are still pivoting to being much more externally focused to be much to get much closer to the consumer to become much more of a brand driven company and not primarily a manufacturing company though we will always be a manufacturing company to a certain extent we had had that meant different skills that we needed to bring in at the executive level and the management level it meant that we needed to adopt different practices in terms of how we marketed our, our products, uh, built our brand and developed an innovation pipeline. And all of that, we were, we were initiating in early 2020. When the pandemic hit, that we were 180 degrees now inwardly focused again. You know, my priority in the pandemic was to make sure our people were safe and to make sure that we could continue making the products that we were selling into the marketplace. There was so much uncertainty around just how do you operate a manufacturing business where we don't have the flexibility to be fully remote when we've got an, a, a production line that's physically anchored to the floor and apples running in that need to be pressed. We've got proximity. We've got issues and limitations to how we can manage through an, a, a pandemic when physical proximity is, is a risk. So it, it was completely, everything was put on hold, to be quite honest, Jeff, in terms of how we were thinking about pivoting the business and growing the business. And we just needed to figure out how we could keep the lights on and how we could keep our, our people safe. As we've emerged out of that, and we had quite a fortunate uh, uh, well, we were very fortunate in how we protected our folks and that nobody in our, our plant um, uh, ever contracted COVID from exposure at our company, which we were very, were very proud about. Um, we also had the fortune of, of experiencing some of the revenue boom that, that uh, resulted uh, for a lot of our CPG food and beverage companies with people shopping, eating at home more, shopping in the grocery store. So that was all great. Um, from how we manage the safety of our folks, how our business grew uh, during that period of time. The other issue that, that we continue to deal with is the supply chain issues that have result, resulted um, as in part the pandemic and the constraints on other folks to scale uh, upstream, uh, but also just the overwhelming demand that is, is still in the system for food and beverage that has completely disrupted our supply chain. So um, we're still trying to rebuild our supply chain. And we're managing through these issues that uh, are making it very difficult to run the plant consistently and to meet the demand of our consumers and our customers. So we are still in pivoting, uh, even though we're, we're now a year and a half after the beginning of pan the pandemic, 
And obviously we're dealing with the Delta variant and this latest surge and, and somewhat uncertain where that's going to go. But we've had to really focus on the core business, make sure that we were operating uh, in a way that was safe and that we reconstruct a supply chain that's been decimated uh, given impact upstream of us uh, that the pandemic has had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the events were so dramatic and I appreciate you sharing about how it wasn't just a reshaping of your uh, your approach back then. It's continuing all the way through today, and the momentum's probably going to continue. So, that's right. I know you have a special place in your heart for philanthropy. Uh, tell me a little bit about your experience with the Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf Foundation, and why that was an important part of your career. Yeah. I love to talk about it because it's a, it remains an important part of, of who I am and what I value. When I uh, started working with Andre and Steph on the business side, as we sought to manage their uh, for-profit endeavors around their brands and investment and, and other aspects of their business, I became aware of what Andre was doing on his philanthropic side and what he and Steph were prioritizing in terms of education and charter schools. Uh, it fascinated me. Education was something that I've always, it's been very important to me and, and how I, uh, I, I raised my kids. Uh, but this was actually an opportunity to see the impact of education on communities that didn't have all the advantages that, that I had growing up, that don't have the resources to send their kids to private schools. And as I volunteered time at the foundation, as we all did, uh, and I got became more aware of, of this kind of impact, the more excited I became about the cause. And, and we ultimately grew that, biz, that, that, that focus into a business where we raised a fund to build campuses for high-performing charter schools across the country. And I did that for about three years. Uh, and we put about $250 million to work to support public charter schools uh, that were building schools and campuses serving inner-city kids across the country. And that was uh, a, a real, it was, it was hard work, uh, but it was a, a filled with passion and commitment and, and something that I, I got a lot of joy out of and, and felt not only was it, a, we, it was a for-profit fund that we were utilizing to, to make this impact. So it kind of continued that thread of my career of having impact through business, but we were, we were providing opportunities for thousands of kids whose surrounding public schools were underperforming and giving them an option where they can have a pathway to a college education and to a different trajectory to their to their lives and and that stayed with me so when i when i took this job uh with martinelli's i immediately uh, uh looked for local schools on which i could serve uh I became a board member and help local charter schools in the santa cruz county uh, to uh, fund facilities and grow their their footprint and to serve their communities more effectively. And right now I'm starting up a, a charter school uh, in Las Vegas that will target um, East Las Vegas, so a different part of, uh, of Las Vegas from where uh, Andre's school is. Uh, but, it, but it continues that mission to serve, uh, in this case, it will be junior high and high school girls because it will be an all-girls public school. Uh, in, in communities where they don't have the resources and, and potentially the role models, uh, given that in a lot of the families, both parents are working, um, haven't uh, made, gone through college, had gotten college educations themselves, in some cases not high school educations. And for me, that ability or that focus on giving opportunity to those kids, it's, it's something that remains uh, a passion of mine and uh, really is, 
is uh, something that I intend to con continue focusing on for the rest of my life. Sure. Well, it's incredibly meaningful work that you've done, and I appreciate you sharing how it's really shaped how who you are today and how you lead today and your your competencies today. So thank you for sharing that. I heard Andre say in an interview, I, I love this quote, he said, if you lose and don't take something from it, it's just a loss. And he also <laughs> said, if you say something regretful and you don't learn from it, then all you did was hurt. So right. yeah, yeah. Let's shift into some lightning round questions. The first one I have for you is what are you most grateful for? Well, for sure, my my wife and kids. Just that so, so much joy uh, that I get from being a husband and a father, and and they keep me grounded. If I'm, if I'm ever in any danger of of not being grounded, I just need to spend some time with my kids, and they know exactly. How, it gives me a great frame of reference and uh, in context for what really matters, and they keep me they keep me in my place. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career? understanding what you can't do and uh, both for for me personally for a team and and in a strategic planning process uh you know it's as important as finding out and focusing on what you can do saying no to things you can't is critical and when often in a young career or as a young manager you think it's you need to do everything and your team needs to do everything and and you can do everything if you just work hard enough and you can't, you need balance in your life and there are limits to what you can do individually, what a team can do collectively and, and what a company can do with, with the resources at hand. And that ability to focus and understand what you can't do and be happy not doing something while focusing on what you can was hard for me. And, and, and it's hard in a strategic planning process to this day, saying no to opportunities that are there but that if you try to go after too much, you're going to fail at everything versus focusing on what matters and doing it really, really well. Yeah. Uh, who's one person you would interview if you could, living or not? Okay. Uh, well, let's so I'm, I love history. As I mentioned earlier, it was my major, and I love American revolutionary history. And, and uh, I think I would interview George Washington, uh, in part because he's one of the least well-documented of the founding fathers, and in part because he had the confidence of ultimately every faction that came out of the group. And, and understanding what really were in the hearts and minds of the founders would be interesting because we tend to, tend to project on them what we feel and what we believe wherever our political views are or whatever era of history we're looking back towards. But really understanding what, what he and they were prioritizing and focusing on and the tough decisions they made and some decisions they didn't make. I'd love to understand that more clearly because it's as much as it's studied, I think much remains unclear. Coincidentally, I just interviewed uh, Dr. Michael Yusim uh, on the podcast and he just, he's, he runs the leadership uh, program at the Wharton School uh, and runs their executive MBA and is a professor there. And he just wrote a book called The Edge and the last chapter in the book, Gun, is all about George Washington and the leadership lessons that we've learned from him. So your, your choice is incredibly timely. Um, no, so that's great. <laughs> appreciate that. So, And speaking of, do you have any top book recommendations for our listeners? 
Well, I will, I will try to go back a little further than just what I'm reading right now. Uh, the one book that always sticks with me, and I think it was partly also the era of time, is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Uh, I read that after I had recently come back from living in Japan for many years and having, having experienced from a business context many different cultures as I worked in different projects around the world. And that book, to me, was all about challenging assumptions and, and not uh, accepting common beliefs or truisms, but really trying to dive down and what is the underlying dynamic that might explain in the context of, of his book, uh, large cultural differences across continents and, and, and uh, differences in economic, current economic status across continents. And, and that was fascinating to understand, again, from with a historical perspective, but it also, as I was embarking on my, my career, was, was embedded that you know, whatever, what's at the surface is not always and often isn't the truth and that you really have to think and dig to understand and get to the core of an issue and, uh, before you're making any kind of a decision or, or, or in, you know, to avoid making the danger of, of making assumptions instead of really understanding what is going on truly at, at, at the foundation of an opportunity, an issue, a problem to solve. And that book really still stays with me uh, in terms of a capstone to a period of life, but also a catalyst for a way of thinking throughout my business career. Sounds like a great read. So what's the single most important thing you would want our human capital listeners to take away from our talk today, if you had to kind of distill it down? So, so uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, you mentioned now I've got Andre in my head. So Andre and I have been friends for many years and, and it's not his quote, but it's one that really was meaningful to him. And he said often in his career, that that really sticks with me and it's that you know i'll paraphrase it in the context of this podcast but that a professional journey professions and careers are not about the goal or the finish line it's about the journey and what i've enjoyed about my professional career is not necessarily what where I am in this particular moment or getting a particular role or getting a particular salary or making a particular deal or transaction. But it is that, that, that those relationships you build and, and the process of working pe with people that you care about and helping other people grow their career while you grow your own and you have your own success. It's the journey along the way and all the people you meet and who you are working with that sticks with you. And uh, it's true in life, but it's certainly true uh, in your professional career. And, and that to me is, is uh, what I'd like to leave folks with, that especially younger folks embarking on their career, worrying about, well, geez, when am I going to be president or when am I going to be make my make X million or whatever it is? It's, right. Those aren't the goals, right? It's, it's find people you love to work with and do something you want to do and, and, and just maximize those relationships and don't look at jobs or opportunities and tra as transactions. It is about that journey that you're on and that we're all on and, and focusing on that journey together. Very sage piece of wisdom right there. So thank you for that. And also thank you Gunn so much for coming on the show today. It was a great conversation. Thanks Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. 
Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.